This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great, great show today. We're going to be covering lots of things today, including the uh, really tragic kind of continuation of the war, devastation, and occupation of Ukraine by Russia. It seems like Russia is taking a playbook, a page out of the playbook of the Israeli military by bombing civilians, killing women and children, as well as destroying civil infrastructure. We'll be covering that a little bit later in the show. Additionally, we'll be talking a little bit about uh, UN human rights experts calling on the international community to protect and support human rights organizations designated as terrorists by the Israeli government. And Israeli settlers continue to increase their attacks on Palestinian villages and farmers throughout the uh, West Bank. And an interesting side note that we should cover today, Jamal, is that uh, your vice president, the vice president of the United States, uh, Kamala Harris, has decided to serve wine. Well, she's serving it during Ramadan, but that's that's another story. She's serving wine. Uh, made by Israeli settlers. So uh, things that have been kind of banned and condemned by the international community. But before we talk about all that, we're going to be uh, looking at a really great interview you did with uh, Shireen Tawil, who's a researcher and consultant who specializes in mental health, reproductive health, environmental health, and social justice with a focus on the Middle East and North Africa. She's going to be discussing her recent article, The Desert Was Already Blooming, Palestine, Colonialism, and Global Climate Justice. Really great interview, Jamal, and I'm looking forward to discussing that with you on the other side. Yeah, and there is one word uh, for all of this, Jess. It's called greenwashing. And, yep. and we look at how Israel greenwashes in addition to pinkwashing and, and everything else. So uh, let's listen and, and watch uh, Shireen Tawil. One of the earliest myths Israel propagated to justify its occupation and theft of indigenous Palestinian land was that it was a desert with no people that it made bloom. Very early on, the Jewish National Fund set to blanketing over ethnically cleansed villages with forests of non-indigenous European evergreen pines. In her recent article, the desert was already blooming. Palestine, colonialism, and global climate justice. Shireen Tawil writes about climate and ecological emergency and how Israel's myth of environmental stewardship couldn't be further from the truth. Shireen Tawil is a researcher and consultant specializing in mental health, reproductive health, environmental health, and social justice with a focus on the Middle East and North Africa. Welcome to Arab Talk, Shireen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Let me uh, start uh, with the basic. Uh, what is climate and ecological emergency and how does it impact vulnerable populations throughout the world, but in this case, Palestinians? So that's a very big question. <laughs> it's um, the climate and ecological emergency is another term for what we commonly describe as um, climate emergency, the climate crisis or climate change. Um, but it's a more accurate term because of the three parts. Um, it discusses climate, which is talking about the 
the increased extreme weather that we experience, um, floods, storms, um, increased heat, increased cold, and also the ecological part to it, which doesn't get talked about as much, which um, is really the, the devastation of nature and wildlife around us um, from humans' activity of uh, intensive agriculture, intensive um, ex um, extraction, generally clearing wildlife areas for development, um, all which has led to uh, about 60% of species going extinct since 1970. So the last 50 years, and that's 60%, six zero. Um, and an emergency, which gives a temporality of it that this is not an open-ended uh, timeline that we have. This is an emergency that we need to address now, not by 2050, not by 2030. We have about two and a half years really to mitigate the worst outcomes that are ahead of us. Um, in terms of how it affects vulnerable populations around the world, um, there's sort of a global pattern that plays out between richer nations and poorer nations where richer nations and richer people within the nations are responsible for um, most of the driving factors behind the climate ecological emergency. So increased um, carbon dioxide emissions, uh, pollution in our water and our air, over extraction, but then the effects of, of those actions are being felt um, the hardest by people in the global south and poor people even within richer nations. Um, so this is where we start looking at this as a matter of justice and the term climate justice comes into it. Um, in this case of Palestinians, it's, uh, it's a fairly dire projection. Um, Palestinians live in one of the areas that's projected to increase heat by I think 4.8 degrees Celsius by the end of this century, which would create a really unlivable um, area. So people have a difficult um, time surviving that, that uh, level of heat. It means decreased rainfall, um, which then impacts food production and also job security, food insecurity increases. Um, so we see all of these all of these patterns playing out for Palestinians, but also around the world now um, as people are forced to migrate from their homes um, due to floods, famine, and then of course are met with uh, less than welcoming immigration policies, should we say, <laughs> from the global north. So a long-standing myth about Israel is that it made the desert bloom. Uh, what was the reality of the historical agrarian society in Palestine prior to Israel's occupation? Was Palestine a desert that needed blooming? Not at all. Um, it was already a very blooming and thriving agrarian society. Um, the Palestinian society was... Uh, very agricultural based, people were very in touch with um, nature around, around them and they relied on uh, food crops that were indigenous to the area. So uh, agrarian society really revolved around um, almonds, olives, uh, lemons, oranges, uh, tomatoes, figs, cucumbers, wheat, barley, uh, zakar, um, sage. It was blooming in grain. There was no no need for 
for anything to be changed or amended. Yeah, I mean, it's part of uh, the Levant, right? That's the yeah. fertile crescent in, in, for yeah. that area. Exactly. So uh, tell us about the Jewish National Fund's uh, ecologically ruinous scheme uh, to green over ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages with non-indigenous pine trees, because that's kind of a, a major part of your uh, research. Yeah, so... As we know, when Israel was established, um, they displaced hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and um, destroyed and depopulated hundreds of villages and towns. And part of Israel's um, uh, plan to sort of cover their tracks um, and not show not show themselves as a depopulating, colonizing force is was to to green the area, right? Because generally we think of adding greenery and trees as a positive thing. And so they literally covered their tracks um, by planting European pine trees um, in Palestine. And so that served three purposes. Um, it was able to sort of uh, cover up Israel's crime of depopulating Palestine and obscure their colonization. Um, and it also physically made it difficult for Palestinians to return to the towns that they had been forced to flee from um, by placing the trees and the forests over the, the ruined towns and villages. Then it created a barrier for Palestinians to go back, repopulate, rebuild. Um, and also by planting in the agricultural fields um, that Palestinians were forced to flee from, it uh, it prevented them from going back and reclaiming reclaiming their agricultural lands, and then on top of it, it was another way to sort of make European Jewish settlers who had come feel like this new Mediterranean land was similar to where they had come from, give them a feeling of home by creating a sort of European vista, um, so they would be surrounded by trees and nature that felt familiar to them to help them establish their, their um, occupation there. And many of these villages are still, I mean, visible, the ruins. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can't see them from the main highways, and that's, that, that's, that's the objective, because I've driven uh, the road, let's say, between Jaffa and Jerusalem, and, and you know that some of these villages uh, existed there, and then until you stop the car and walk a little bit through those pine pine trees, which is you're absolutely right, it's trying to give you that alpine feeling, which which is not indigenous to to Palestine. And then you'll see you'll see these villages. Many of the homes are are still standing. Others have been have been have been destroyed. Well, yeah, we know they're still there, but it's you know out of sight, out of mind, also for them and for other visiting people, and it, it helps obscure the history. In addition to its nefarious intent to, to disappear uh, indigenous Palestinian villages and culture, how devastating was this to the native ecosystems? So whenever we bring in a non-native um, tree or fauna or nature, it, it disrupts a system that's already there. Um, so what happened with the pine trees um, is that they, the pine trees, when the needles fall from the from the trees onto the onto the land, then it acidifies the soil. 
So that contributes to soil degradation and it changes the composition of the soil, um, which then in turn can make it more difficult for indigenous um, plants to grow. Pine trees are also um, not the right trees for the atmosphere, for the, the, the arid climate of the Levant or of Palestine, particularly in this uh, scenario, um, especially now with increased global heating, the pine trees increase the risk of wildfires, which is what we're seeing um, across Israel and Palestine in the last few decades, increased wildfires. Um, which they blame on the Palestinians, by the way. What, they're not going to blame themselves for it. <laughs> Um, and so that's that's historically speaking for the pine trees that were that were planted in in the 40s with the establishment of Israel. But now they're also continuing that in the Negev Desert in the Naqab, um, trying to plant a, a whole new forest there, which they say is for you know combating climate change and promoting themselves as as ecological protectors. But really, it's to further displace the Palestinian Bedouins who live in the in the in the Negev desert um, and to separate them from their land. And the ecological um, impact of that then is that they are sort of decimating the the indigenous grasslands that are in the desert there, um, which are home to rare species of plants um, like the a dark brown iris and uh, endemic daffodil that's from there and certain types of lizards and um, ground nesting birds. So there's a whole ecosystem that's already in play, which they're continuing to interfere with. Um, so they're basically bringing in a, a foreign population of, of trees and nature into a system that's already living and thriving. And we can see the parallel there with the uh, Israeli conservation and Palestinian society. Absolutely. Uh, there's something that actually I, I learned from your uh, publication about the black goat, which is uh, a eponymous goat damage law. That's actually I didn't know about. Uh, mm -hmm. Incarnate the, the felicity of Israel's perpetual claim uh, to bloom the desert. Tell us about this. What's And what's the moral uh, to the story? So... So going back to the, the Bedouins and, and other Palestinian um, communities, um, in 1950, and again, an attempt to separate Palestinians from their land and from the agrarian society, um, Israel passed the, the Black Goat Law, Black Goat Ban. Um, and that was to ban the herding of, of black goats, um, which were native to the area. and they said that it was because they were endangering the pine tree saplings that they had planted. Um, but really it's another way of just breaking apart Palestinian society. Um, and so what happened when they banned the black goats, again, going back to nature, having its own cycles and its own relationships with each other, the goats used to um, eat the shrubs and the, the undergrowth from trees, which helped prevent fires from spreading. And so now with the goats having been banned for 70 years and um, the increase of pine, uh, pine trees and pine needles, the wildfires um, have continued to spread. And I 
think that they've just recently repealed it and have been saying that actually they need to bring back the black goats to help prevent the um, the wildfires. Um, I think I think the moral of of the black goat ban. I think there are two two morals we can take away from it, uh, which is one sort of leave nature alone where we can. Um, there are those relationships that are already established between animals and plants and atmosphere that we may or may not understand, but they're there for a reason. They've evolved over hundreds of years um, to be where they are. And also to trust indigenous knowledge. Um, and Palestinians clearly understood that there was a positive relationship with having the goats there, herding them there, letting them graze on the land there. And I think the takeaway is not just Palestinians, but all indigenous people, they have knowledge that has been passed down through generations of being very closely related to the land and understanding those relationships in a way that outsiders don't necessarily understand. And we need to acknowledge and trust and respect that knowledge um, and place it at the forefront when we're trying to um, fight against the climate and ecological emergency. I mean, here is the, the, the irony, because where I live, uh, right here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, property owners, um, you know, hire farms to, to, to send their goats so they can clear the, the brush around, you know, the homes and properties to prevent basically fires. I mean, this is, uh, people pay for that. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's not, it was, it was part of, part of society also before we capitalized on everything and <laughs> made everything a thing. Yeah. So uh, colonial extraction, resource depletion by Israel, you make a, a, a critical distinction between humans, historical use of the Earth's resources in a regenerative approach and colonial extractivism, a capitalistic ethos of domination over nature and indifference to human well-being. Talk about this. So I think the difference, I wanted to make a distinction because it's important to understand that we as humans were part of nature and all nature takes from other parts of it, um, but then replaces it um, in a regenerative way, puts it back in, it's part of a cycle. Um, but with the rise of capitalism and with the unsatiable greed, let's say of colonialism, there's been a pillaging, not just in Palestine, but around the world in colonial history, um, looking at, uh, extraction of gold and, and silver in, in South America um, when the Spaniard when the Spanish were there. Um, the, the in Southeast Asia um, and in uh, the extraction of, of tea and other resources, um, looking at rubber extraction from the Congo, there's there's a, a method and a pattern of extracting just for the production of money um, with no caring for the consequences of the people um, who live there, no um, plan for 
balancing and making sure that we're not over extracting um, and really just pillaging the earth for these minerals at a rate and a speed that is very destructive to the earth and to the societies that live there already. I mean, this is something, I mean, there is a pattern behind, like uh, actually you have a template, uh, of, uh, you know, describing this exploitation of colonial settlerism. Uh, so is it now repeating itself in Palestine? Yeah, um, so we can look at, I think, two cases come to mind in Palestine. Um, so in the article, I used the Visualizing Palestine's uh, wonderful infographics on um, on the climate ecological emergency in Palestine. And they focused on the extraction of non-renewable stones in quarries um, in the West Bank. And Israel, Israel takes advantage of their um, their position of power by extracting um, stones from the West Bank and using them for their own um, own money generating purpose, where they are extracting stones from there. And I think ninety four percent of the stones go to building um, structures inside of Israel for the benefit of Israeli society and that then we also need to recognize that while they're doing that, Palestinians are not getting the financial benefit that should come to them um, from, the, from the use of the resources that are on their land. So they're being deprived of $3.4 billion a year um, just from the stone extraction for Palestinian economy. And then on the meantime, in the meantime, that's being coupled with while Israel is pillaging Palestinian land for resources to continue to build itself, they are dispossessing Palestinians of their homes um, on a systematic basis and also then not giving permits for Palestinians to um, extend homes, repair homes. So they're benefiting from their own building while de-housing, de depopulating Palestinians at the same time. Palestinians are not getting the same benefit from the resources that are on their land. And we're not even talking about the resources in the sea, because as you know, Israel also uh, getting gas from the sea and, and, and prevents Palestinians in Gaza from accessing yeah. these gas fields. Of course. And then there's also the other, the other thing that comes to mind is water, um, which we might not think of as a scarce resource, but as the area heats up, as the emergency increases um, in the West Bank, Israel regularly regularly diverts water away from Palestinian towns and villages to the illegal Israeli settlements that are there. And with their blockade on Gaza, it's paralyzed and decimated Gaza's ability to clean their own water. Um, and they now have undrinkable water. Um, so we need to think also about these resources that, that Israel is um, capitalizing on for their own benefit. What about uh, toxic waste disposal, remaining Palestinian land? Uh, you talk about it serves as Israel's dumping ground for Israel's waste treatment, including uh, toxic waste dumps. Yeah. So around the world, there, there are what we call sacrifice zones, um, which, you know, if you break it down, it's pretty easy to understand that it's these are areas that the powers that be, whether it's governments or corporations, have decided 
they can sacrifice the people and their health in those areas so that they can carry on with their extraction, production, waste, whatever. And those are the sites that people are seeing their lives are valued less because you're not going to dump waste in someone's backyard who you feel like has value. Um, and so we see the same thing playing out in Israel where Israel as the occupying power illegally regularly transfers its own waste to the West Bank, um, which it can be chemical waste, hazardous waste, uh, solid waste, wastewater. Um, and that's illegal under international law, as well as the fact that um, the illegal Israeli settlements and their wastewater is routinely dumped in Palestinian agricultural land in the West Bank. Um, A lot of times they just do it purposely. I mean, aside from yeah. the plan itself, just to harass the farmers. Well, this is, yeah. So there's there's part of it where they're not held accountable to it if, if it's just singular people who are dumping their waste. And the idea that they, it's the same idea, right? That the, the Palestinians that live there, even if it's an individual action and not a government action, that they are less than. So it's um, it's perpetuating that idea. And, um, you know, settlers dump something like 40 million cubic meters of water per year, of, sorry, of wastewater um, into, into the West Bank, into the, the earth. So what does that do to the land and then to the crops and the food that people are eating that's growing from there? Shereen Tawil, thank you for, for coming on, on Arab Talk. I can talk about this forever, but we have a limited time. No problem. I, thank you so much for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. That's the voice and the face of Shireen Tawil. She's a researcher and consultant that specializes on global health issues and social justice with a focus on the Middle East and North Africa. And uh, greenwashing all the way, Jamal. Very, very powerful, important uh, interview that you did with Shireen. And it seems like, as usual, uh, the apartheid regime of Israel wants to hold itself out as this kind of green oasis uh, and what they're doing, yet in fact they're practicing a pretty virulent form of climate disaster with tremendous impacts on on health, uh, human rights, and uh, mental health, for sure. Well, just a quick question uh, to you, just since you've visited Palestine many times. Is Palestine an alpine country? <laughs> is it Switzerland, or is it any uh, part of Pal Europe? Uh, Palestine is not Switzerland. Palestine is not part of Europe. And as Shireen noted in her, you know, excellent article, well before the colonial activity by by the Israelis, uh, Palestine was uh, a beautiful agricultural area and a bread basket and a fruit basket and a food basket for the Levantine area for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of years. And so um, to kind of situate uh, the Israeli greenwashing uh, attempt to connect it with an alpine 
for European uh, kind of experiences well, really Well, that's ridiculous. the whole idea. I mean, aside from uh, the ethnically cleansing of villages, which she spoke about, and then covering them with uh, alpine, with basically pine trees. Right. And, and, and something that they imported from Europe. That's why I asked you that question. And then, of course, uh, the uprooting of the indigenous trees, like olive trees, that Palestinians lived off uh, olives and olive oil for centuries uh, to cover their crimes, and then selling it to the international community and saying, look, we're planting trees. Look at all the greens, uh, the green areas that we have created. And, of, and, the, and, and the last thing about, about the, these trees is that's why we've been seeing an uptick in fires, in forest right. fires. Well, but, you know, I guess that's the point, Jamal, is that this is the typical Israeli apartheid uh, greenwashing attempt. I mean, pine trees do not belong in Palestine. Great. You want to plant trees? Why are you uprooting, as you said, why are you uprooting all the indigenous uh, forestry that's been in Palestine for thousands of years, including the uh, olive groves? Uh, what about all of the orange groves that have been destroyed in Palestine and lemon and all the other kind of amazing agriculture that has been part of Palestine for thousands of years that has been destroyed and uprooted as a result of their colonial ex ex you know, exercises? So I think it's an important article. It's an important thing that we have to continue to kind of speak about. And, uh, you know, the fact that they get, get away with this greenwashing needs to be called out. And, you know, Shireen did a really wonderful job. That's right. Moving on to the next topic, uh, as as everybody knows, this is the month of Ramadan, and not only this, but the month of Ramadan, but also uh, Christians and Palestinians, uh, especially, I mean, just this Sunday, it was the Orthodox uh, Easter, Easter, so we wish everyone right. uh, also a happy Easter, but uh, attacks by Israeli settlers and Israeli occupation army ha have increased, uh, targeting uh, Palestinians during these holidays. Uh, uh, Muslims have been prevented from uh, going to Friday prayers uh, at Al-Aqsa Mosque. They've been beaten, they've been arrested, they've been hit with uh, rubber bullets and, 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 and gas canisters. And also, even during the Orthodox Easter, uh, Christians were prevented uh, from going to the uh, Holy, Holy Sepulchre. Uh, but including all of this, there, has been, uh, there have been several attacks by settlers on uh, Palestinian uh, villagers just uh, this Saturday. An Israeli settler shot three Palestinians uh, in, in near the West Bank town of, of Surif. Uh, the village of Al-Luban uh, al near city, in the city of Nablus was attacked uh, by several settlers, and we're talking about greenwashing, and they cut down around 170 olive trees and damaged villagers' homes and ve uh, vehicles with, with stones. 170 trees were cut down. Just this is kind of like ties into this this whole article and 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 to the interview with Shireen. This has just happened uh, recently. In 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 uh, in another village, they attacked uh, a Palestinian uh, and cut down his trees. Uh, the owner's name is uh, villager Raja Wais, and and he woke up in the morning and they basically destroyed. 
uh, olive trees in in his eight dunums, roughly two acres of land. Not only, I mean, the damage caused the trees, but this is his only livelihood. I mean, he lives right. off this from season to the season. It took him, I heard his interview, it took him 18 years to get these trees grown to uh, to the production level and they, they destroyed them. In, in the village of Marda, near the city of Selfit, a uh, group of settlers attacked a number of vehicles, smashing windows, damaging vehicles before they ran away. This is an ongoing daily thing. Uh, no one is getting arrested. I mean, you know, if of it course. was the other way around, no one is getting a, no one is getting arrested. It has not been reported in 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 the media, except except for the the local media. And it's getting to a very dangerous point because now you're talking about seven hundred thousand settlers armed to the teeth in the West Bank, Jess. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. And this is part of the larger picture of the provocation that the uh, illegal Israeli colonial settlers engage in at a very, very sensitive time. You know, it being Ramadan, it being Easter for both. Christian and, uh, and Orthodox uh, Palestinians, and the fact of attacking and destroying and uprooting the most sacred of Palestinian agriculture, which is the olive tree, Jamal, not only symbolically, but in reality, as you said, with many of the Palestinian villagers, this is their sole source of income being totally destroyed. And of course, let's not forget, Jamal, this is occurring at a time when the world's attention is on the recession, it's on inflation, it's on Russia, it's on Ukraine. So Israeli uh, military and colonial settlers, you know, what what are they doing? They're taking another uh, opportunity to destroy, to extend their colonial exercise at a time when the world is kind of paying attention to other things. So it's, it's beyond sad, it's tragic. It's tragic that in fact, you know, this source of livelihood for many Palestinians uh, is being destroyed right before our eyes. But I, I would say, Jamal, you know, the the fact that uh, we have articles by Shireen coming out right now, you know, our next uh, segment is going to be, you know, people who are ready to call out uh, the United Nations, ready to call out the Israeli government because of their attack on human rights organizations, colleagues of terrorist organizations. We should keep in mind that there is tremendous pressure on the Israeli government, but they they do this stuff. The colonial, uh, you know, illegal settlers get away. They they do this stuff with impunity, Jamal. And there's no because because they get a pass, uh, sadly, from the United States and and other but, uh, Jamal, other countries. It's not just it's not just the pass. You have the vice president of the United States celebrating illegal well, colonial settlers. Well, that's 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 actually a segue before we go to the next segment, just and and that's why I wanted to talk about about this, which is uh, and this is very recent. So on April sixteenth, uh, the vice president of the U.S. Kamala Harris and a second, I guess, second gentleman you refer to, Douglas Emhoff, held a seder uh, dinner at the uh, vice president's uh, uh, residence in which wine from Zagot Winery, an illegal Israeli settlement enterprise in the occupied West Bank, and uh, was served and uh, and featured, by the way, in the event on the menu, etc., was uh, and on, on social media, 
It wasn't just like they've just slipped some uh, right. illegal they wine celebrated. or, or they, they celebrated, celebrated that. And this land, uh, yes, uh, it is appropriated Palestinian land, belongs to the family, the Quran family, which had this land for centuries. So Psagot Winery, which is an illegal settlement enterprise, uh, was condemned by by stealing this land by, you know, I mean, it violated all kinds of Security Council resolutions, including UN Security Council Resolution 2334 in 2016 as having no legal validity and, and, and constituting a flagrant violation under international law. And this is, of course, this is a topic that you and I have been discussing for ages. I mean, I mean, this is something that has been ongoing since 1948, but, basically. But Jamal, as you said, this is part of the impunity. Not only do these colonial settlers who are illegal on stolen Palestinian land uh, get away with this stuff, they get a pass by the U.S. government, as you said, but they're being celebrated. And, you know, I, I was, uh, I just want to remind our listeners and viewers, I was criticized when uh, the second gentleman, uh, uh, you know, that his background and support for these illegal colonial set settlements was not made a bigger issue during the uh, election uh, when uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden were, you know, were running as a team. And, you know, this, for all the progressive Democrats, got shoved under the rug. It is well known that uh, the second gentleman, Emhoff, is a big supporter, not just of the apartheid regime of Israel, but clearly of the illegal settlements. I mean, you know, nothing gets done at the White House. Nothing gets done with the vice president. With, You know, where the asparagus comes from, Jamal, is vetted, you know, on a menu because they post the menu online. And so they knew it was Ill the wine was produced on illegal settlements. And yet not only did they let it happen. They celebrated it, and nobody. Uh, this this is why the colonial settlers, the illegal colonial settlers, get away with it because they do it with impunity, and they're celebrated by the vice president of the United States. Yes, and and so um, several Palestinian human rights organizations uh, have written uh, letters to the office of the vice president. So far, we haven't heard anything about you this. Won't if this hear was anything. a mistake because this is something. It's not a mistake. This is deliver. something Donald Trump and and his ilk were doing. You know, violating all kinds of uh, international laws, uh, allowing Israel to formally annex the Golan Heights, the Syrian Golan Heights, moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv into Jerusalem under his watch, and 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 everybody's saying, well, it is the Republicans, it's Donald Trump. Now you have someone who's from San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay Area, very liberal here, uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, she was our DA and she was our senator in California. And so I don't know if this is ignorance on it's her not, office Jamal, or her aides uh, to, to bring a wine from an illegal settlement, which is really violates the United States, uh, you know, standards uh, and uh, on human rights and also if the united states supports the so-called two-state solution and uh, supports uh, the united nations because those are violations of the geneva convention and and just to kind of like nonchalantly just allow it to happen 
I guarantee you, Jamal, it wasn't done out of ignorance. I, I, I can guarantee very few things. I guarantee you this was not done out of ignorance. This was calculated. It was vetted. It was planned. This is the same Kamala Harris, Jamal, just to remind our listeners and viewers, who snuck into APAC uh, in the back door so she wouldn't be seen to give a presentation to APAC when she was part of the ticket with Joe Biden running for, you know, in the 2020 election. So um, let, let's let's call it what it is. It's support for an illegal colonial project. I mean, and I understand this and serving wine on Seder, uh, you need to serve kosher wine. There are hundreds of uh, kosher uh, wineries. Thousands. Many of these wineries are in the United States, right here in the, in, in, in the U.S. And if you wanted to import from another country, you can do that. But to go and specifically put on the menu wine from a stolen land, from Palestinian stolen land, basically. And I, I have another prediction, Jamal. You won't hear anything from the vice president's office. Well, they need to answer to this. What, what, what's, their, what's the excuse? There, there won't be an excuse. I mean, I don't want to get too far afield right now, but uh, Kamala Harris and her office have been having tremendous problems. Her chief of staff has quit. Uh, there's a big kind of... Um, uprising, if you will, among her staff. I mean, many people, I think, you know, and I'm, I, I can't, you know, confirm this independently, but my sense is her lack of progressive bona fides, her lack of fidelity towards real progressive issues has fallen by the wayside. So, I mean, I, yes, this is the time when the United States uh, is calling for the boycott of Russia because of its aggression on Ukraine and the entire world. And, of course, the BDS movement in the United States, of course, is against boycotting Israel. But not only this, they are inviting, they're bringing into, the, into basically an official state dinner, they're bringing stolen wine, basically. Well, exactly, Jamal. So I guess some occupations are worth boycotting and, uh, or calling out, and some are not. So, as you said, the United States is willing to engage in a, let's call it what it is. The United States is engaged in a BDS against Russia, okay, for what they're doing in Ukraine. The Russians have taken the Israeli playbook. They're doing in Ukraine what the Israeli military did in Gaza, Jamal. I mean, they've, we, we, what about all the pictures? We saw what happened in Grozny. We saw what happened in Aleppo. We see what's happening in uh, Kharkiv. We see what's happening in Ukraine. Are they any different for the pictures that we saw in Gaza? You and I have been there. We saw it with our own eyes. But yet that occupation, that destruction, that military kind of devastation of civilians, women and children, that doesn't rise for the United States. So here we we're back to the hypocrisy, the racism and some occupations being OK, some being worth, you know, calling out. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Uh, moving on to the next topic, Jess, uh, and this is something we've discussed when Israel basically, when right. Israel does not like what what people are saying about it, <laughs> including the United Nations, including uh, Human Rights Watch, including its Everybody. own Beth Salem, basically describing it as an, as an apartheid state. Uh, 
So for uh, with Palestinian, I mean, uh, with with international uh, human rights organizations, it tries to vilify them and and dismiss their reports like, oh, they don't know what they're doing. Human Rights Watch, they are biased, they are anti-Semitic. Uh, Amnesty International, also, they don't know what they're doing. The United Nations is all basically um, being selective and targeting Israel. But when it is a, a Palestinian organization, when you have Palestinian organization doing that so what do they do they put them on the terror list so they say these are terror organizations that's the easy way they bypass the accusation of anti-semitism they bypass the accusation of bias and they say they are and you know this is very dangerous because that's why and we'll talk about what's happening because when they do that as a country, because Israel is considered by the United Nations standards and international as a sovereign country. So when a sovereign country puts a, an organization on the terror list, it means that you won't receive any funding, you won't right. receive any collaboration, maybe they put restrictions on your, on ba your bank accounts, you cannot get bank transfers, you cannot travel. So... Uh, and so two things happen. I'll start with the breaking news because this is an update to what we're going to talk about, the, the UN experts, which basically called on all governments to resume funding the six Palestinian uh, civil rights organizations designated by Israel as terrorist organizations. But just recently, Jess, the American Bar Association, and this is very, very important, they sent a letter, they addressed it to the Israeli Prime Minister Neftali Bennett, and uh, and asked asked in in that letter to procedural rights guaranteed under international law and 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 they wanted they asked him to produce any evidence that he <laughs> that Israel of course Israel never produced any evidence that these organizations in fact are terror groups that's this is this is, I think is very important because you have now the American Bar Association involved. But the other big news is that the United Nations, and this is through their uh, expert, uh, and this on um, today, basically, issued this, uh, April 25th, which is today, they issued uh, a report and, 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 and a statement uh, calling on international community to take immediate and effective steps to protect and sustain the six Palestinian civil, civil society groups that were designated as terrorist organizations by the government of Israel in October 21st. Well, this is breaking news, Jamal. And I, with all due respect to the United Nations, the, the statement from the American Bar Association is actually more important than the United Nations statement because the American Bar Association represents a cross-section of arguably one of the most legal, most important legal organizations in, in the world and in fact, some people might say has a bit more credibility in terms of some of these issues than the United Nations. We, we could talk about that. Analysis. Well, we I remember we talked about uh, just a week ago about the um, Harvard uh, Law Review. Harvard Law Review. Basically right. saying that Israel is an apartheid state. Well, I think basically what's happening, Jamal, is that uh, the apartheid regime is being called out across all sectors of the uh, of the international community, the legal community, the human rights community, the health rights community. So you see that the uh, apartheid regime is being called out on many fronts right now, as they should. But traditionally, the American Bar Association has not 
always taken the most robust human rights stances. So I consider this, from my perspective, having seen you know the trajectory of the American Bar Association over the decades, this is a very significant move. Unfortunately, I don't think Naftali Bennett is going to do anything with the American Bar Association. But hey, that's okay. It's you, I'm sorry to keep saying this every show, Jamal, but it's a marathon, and this is the next you know step in the marathon of holding the apartheid regime accountable for the American Bar Association to do this. To shed a little bit more light on these organizations, just for those who missed uh, our discussion about them, and, and, and this is uh, this was in, in last October when Israel designated them as uh, terror groups. So I'm just going to go down the list of the six Palestinian civil society organizations. The first one is called Ad-Damir, Ad-Damir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association. Does this strike you as a terror group? I actually know a lot of the people in that organization, Jamal. They, not, no, it's not, and it's, it's another legal, another not. legal organization. It's called Al Haq. Al Haq means I know Al Haq li- also. Light uh, rights, like Al Haq, human rights right, or the right. So, so that's also on the terror list. Bisan Center for Research and Development. It's a research center. They put it on the terror list. Defense for Children International, does this strike you as a terror organization? Well, actually, I've, I've, I've done some work with them, Jamal. I know that organization very well. They're the organization that documents the use of torture by the Israeli military against Palestinian children. The Union so of a- Agricultural Work Committees and the Union of Palestinian Women Committees, these are all designated as terrorist organizations by Israel. What is Israel afraid of, uh, just to designate? Yeah, it's obviously the truth. These organizations have a multi-decade history of calling out illegal practices, uh, either from a legal standpoint or a medical legal standpoint, like the Defense of Children International, Jamal, is an awesome organization. It's the only organization internationally although based in Palestine, that documents and holds accountable from a documentation point of view, the use of torture against Palestinian children by the Israeli military. It's an incredibly important organization. So, yeah, the Israelis want to stop. It's, it's clear what they're trying to do, right, Jamal? They want to stop the funding. They want to stop international funding of these organizations. That's what it's about. Well, also this uh, designation enables Israel to close uh, the organizations, seize their assets and their work, and charge their leadership and staff with terrorist offenses. I mean, that's yeah. that's well, just we, like... we will follow. We will follow this story, Jamal. We'll we'll try to see if we can locate someone at the American Bar Association, you know, for a comment uh, in the future. So we have a few minutes just uh, left, and this is a topic we've been discussing now for weeks. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, no silver lining uh, that I see on the horizon. Well, not only is there no silver lining, Jamal, I think as uh, we have talked about and unfortunately predicted, things are going to get significantly worse. Just in the last week, Jamal, they bombed Odessa. Odessa is a seaport, uh, a Ukrainian seaport, that uh, has, you know, basically been, you know, uh, neglected in terms of the grotesque bombing that has happened. But uh, it appears that uh, either a Grad missile or some sort of uh, 
some sort of uh, high-velocity missile that went through an apartment complex in Odessa, killing 12 people, including a woman and a three-month-old baby. It was really devastating. And the rest of the eastern side, from the east down to the south, the Russian offensive is taking over. Putin is doubling down. He was in church yesterday, in case you, you are viewers and listeners might have missed it. Putin was in an Orthodox church making the, the Orthodox sign of the cross at a time when he's basically uh, unleashed this campaign of uh, murderous campaign against uh, Ukrainian civilians in the country of, uh, of UK. It's not going to get better. I mean, I don't understand why the media uh, is still portraying the heroic efforts, which it is, obviously, of what the Ukrainian resistance is. But it's getting worse, Jamal. And today, for the first time, I saw an article in The Guardian, I think. It's the first time I saw an article that said nobody wants to pay attention to the possibility that Russia could win. So this is the first time I've seen in the mainstream media open acknowledgement of something that Mainstream media here has refused to acknowledge that there is a there is a very realistic probability that, and I'm putting this in quotes, that Russia could actually come out of this with their strategic, military, and political uh, goals uh, attained, which is controlling the east and the south of Ukraine and creating this corridor for for Russia, and that would be devastating. And no matter how you look at it, Jamal, no matter how many. Uh, weapons we send and the world sends Ukraine, it's it's being destroyed, full stop. Well, I mean, there is a, a different solution, which is a peaceful solution. And it seems that uh, when you watch the news, when you watch politicians in the West, it looks like everybody, everyone wants to see the Ukrainians fight the Russians to the last drop of blood rather than anything and 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 just say we're going to give you money okay yeah so the united states is giving them a lot of money now um, just recently like a billion dollars we're going to give you weapons and and just fight it but we're not going to give you any any anything else they threw them totally under the bus you know the united states and nato we're not going to send any troops to help you out but we'll give you the money we'll give you the weapons and you get yourself out of this mess through fighting, and it's not working because maybe it's slowing, as you said, it's slowing the Russians. But I see, like like you and everybody else, entire cities being destroyed, over six million refugees uh, left, basically Ukraine, and and I don't know what the number of the internally displaced uh, Ukrainians, uh, and, and 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 you know. I lost count of the number of deaths, um, you know, uh, how many people have died. So it's fine. You could give them weapon and, 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 and money to fight the Russians. But how long are you going to watch this carnage continue? Well, Jamal, that's really the big question. We're in the 21st century right now, and the whole world is standing by while innocent civilians, men, women, and children are being murdered and uh, and killed, and we're seeing a whole country be destroyed. And why hasn't the world learned from what the Russians did in Aleppo? Why hasn't the world learned what Russia did in Chechnya and in Grozny? I mean, the, the, the kind of brutality that the Russians engage in, uh, the Russian military engage in, because I want to make sure, you know, there are lots of Russians themselves who are against Putin and against this war, 
but the Putin and the Russian military have traditionally engaged in a scorched earth policy where they kill and destroy everything in its path. And there's nothing, Jamal, nothing, nothing, nothing that gives you or me any sense that this is going to stop anytime soon. Uh, Putin is all in. He's doubling and tripling down. And we can send all the weapons we want. But unless we're willing as a world to stand up to this, the Ukrainians are going to be, I'm sorry to say this, are going to be not just thrown under the bus, but rolled over uh, by this uh, bus of the Russian military. Well, the world does very little to do what it really needs. Well, sadly, we'll probably be talking about this more next week. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest show, and we will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Thank you.